0: For listeners that are members of the 81st Striker Brigade, primarily in the 3rd Battalion, the 161st Infantry, the Dark Rifles, you're going to know who uh, my guest is today. It's now 1st Lieutenant, was Sergeant Jacques Van Ruin. Now, Jacques is a, a close a friend of mine, and uh, he was very happy to share with us his experience in China as an English teacher. Um, He spent several years over there with him and his family uh, before coming back to the United States uh, to to be a minister. Now, his perspective is fundamentally different than gold corns or dollars because he's not a China expert. He's not an academic. He's somebody who actually just lived, breathed, and just worked in China and did so fairly recently. And so you'll start to see a, a, a harmonization between what he experienced and what he talks about, especially when he gets into to bribes and the anti-corruption uh, push, that you heard Goldcorn and Dollar talk about. Now this hel- helps us kind of slice the onion in multiple different directions so that way we can really kind of get an idea of what it's like uh, to live and breathe in China. Let's get after it. You have a professional obligation for the ethical application of, uh, of force. You can have a growth mindset where you're always achieving for better. This is about us, about our guard, our reputation. We are all in this together. Outthink, outmaneuver, and outfight the
1: enemy. If you wage war, do it energetically and with severity.
0: We want somebody working for us that we have to hold back, not somebody that we have to keep pushing. All right, thanks for joining us again. I'm Chaplain Sanders, and I'm on with a former uh, Raven uh, Brigade member, uh, First Lieutenant jacques minruyan who was once uh well just want you to tell us about yourself
1: yeah okay so uh, lieutenant jacques minruyan formerly in the washington army national guard i was a striker mechanic with three, the 161 one. And, and um yeah had a great time on deployment with chaplain sanders over in poland for about a year and that was a fun time
0: yeah we got a a lot of stuff done while, while we were over there but so um the reason why I wanted to ask you on is like we're kind of wrapping up our uh, our china series and we've talked to like all these like kind of like high level people that like have they have, have kind of like the the top level overview and even like Jeremy Goldkorn who actually lived in China still kind of skewed like kind of more macro you have a history with china can you tell us a little bit uh, a little bit about that yeah
1: for sure so I, this was Back in, I think about 2010 or so, uh, um, my family and I, we, we've been in Christian ministry for a long time, since maybe 2007, and we wanted to go to China as missionaries, basically. Um, and so we were serving there with an international missions organization for about four years in northern China, in what's considered a at the time like a third or second tier city called Hohat in a region called Inner Mongolia. Uh, so it's still a massive city you know several million people i forget exactly just how many um, but they didn't have you know quite the level of like foreign influence as beijing did so you don't have all of the um you know the the foreign brands and whatnot mcdonald's starbucks all the rest well there's a mcdonald's i'll I'll take that back um and very few foreigners right so the whole time that we're there in inner mongolia i never met a single american other than my own family. I met a Canadian once. I met a couple of Europeans, a few from England, quite a few Africans, and some from uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, But yeah, so, um, and that was just, and we left, when we left was just when things were really changing, I think, in China, as far as with Xi Jinping's uh, rise to power, because we were there during uh, Hu Jintao's time. I forget exactly what year Xi Jinping came into power, but it was right either towards the end of that time or after we left. And I think China today, even just in these last 10 years, has changed pretty dramatically. Uh, but from the time that we were there, I think um, we could at least bring something to this conversation for sure.
0: Yeah. So, so that's like two, 2010 to 2014. Like um, so like mm-hmm. All right. So to understand the change, Kind of like frame us what that time period was like like for you, and then like how how did it how did that change?
1: So the the biggest change was Xi Jinping's campaign against corruption. I think um, this is something I was looking at just recently and thinking about a lot. Uh, and I'm looking right now. Xi Jinping came to power in 2013, so it was just towards the tail end of our time there. And corruption when we were in China was endemic in a way unlike anything I've ever seen before. And in a way that's different than any type of corruption we see in America. So, I think in America we take for granted the fact that corruption does exist, but it exists, in my perspective anyway, at the highest levels of power, right? And so you hear about Bob Menendez, for example, taking gold bars from, uh <laughs> you know, from what whatever country was like, like, <laughs> like that type of corruption, right? Like he's getting in on that type of money, right? Uh, potentially, allegedly, right? Um, and we see corruption on that level and we kind of expect it we expect politicians to get kickbacks and things like that and that type of corruption is is called like access corruption right so it's the ability to have access to the people that are needed to make the deals happen to get the bills passed or to get the contracts signed etc um, but what we don't see in america that we saw everywhere in china was a a corruption that goes not just from the top but all the way down the chain to the bottom and to the very, very bottom of the economic scale. And that's what we don't see. And I think that's something that if you and I had to deal with on a day-to-day basis, we would not tolerate, right? And so you see corruption in in the form of uh, petty theft, for example. Uh, Petty theft meaning just pickpocketing on the street. So in our city, in Hohat, Inner Mongolia, you could stand on the street corner, and we live right like on the Fifth Avenue there, like the most busy street in our city, the, the center of everything was packed with people. You could stand in the street corner, and you could count in 10 minutes and watch and see some five or six people get pickpocketed if you just stood there. And <laughs> wow. so the police, right, they're obviously aware of this, but the corruption is happening to allow this to happen, right? It takes place, and the police don't do anything about it. There was this one time where my wife had her cell phone stolen, right? And she saw it, and the guy ran off. She went over to this police officer, leaning up against his police van, smoking a cigarette, and she was telling him in Chinese, "This guy just stole my my phone," <laughs> and he literally blew face, literally blew smoke in her face and said what can you do about it there's nothing that can be done it's this famous chinese saying may Banfa." there's nothing that can be done and so that type of there was that type of corruption on that level even i would add to that picture on that same street there are beggars that would take their place on the street every morning and there were two different kinds there were one kind that they all wore these matching garments like these kind of like blue peasant robes that they wore and they all had matching tin pans and they all kind of looked similar and they went out in the street all at the same time and they basically got there at a certain time and they got picked up at a certain time and it was an a a massive operation right someone is bringing them in putting them on the street they're panhandling they get picked up at the end of the work day and taken back to wherever they live right And it's not that these people are just destitute of their own, but they're really in some type of, you know, whether it's labor or just truly slavery or something, but I'm sure uh, whatever they're getting compensated with is probably just enough to survive, right, and to continue on doing this another day. And the other type of uh, uh, panhandling was just of a a completely grotesque kind of form, right? There's this guy with no limbs who would push himself around with his stubs, like on a kind of like on a skateboard kind of a thing, a platform with wheels, or just push himself around all day long with the stubs of his arms and his legs. There was a woman who looked like she was covered from head to toe in burn scars. I don't know what it was, right? Just her whole body. And she's holding an infant in her arms, things like that. Just grotesque stuff. This guy with this massive growth on the side of his neck, that was probably like 30, 30 pounds, right? So these people too, who, couldn't have gotten there, like the guy with the, with the stubs, right? He couldn't have got himself there on his own. Somebody's bringing him there, dropping him off and leaving him to panhandle, coming back and picking him up, right, and profiting off of their misfortune. And there's this level of corruption that's happening there. But then beyond just the theft, there's, there's like throughout China at the time that we're there, there's this thing using these red envelopes uh, called, uh, uh, hong, I think it's like hongbao, right? It's a red envelope, right? Right. That you put money in and you gift to people in the form of a bribe. And so it has its roots like in the Chinese New Year, people would give each other these red envelope gifts as like a way of like celebrating the Chinese New Year and wishing good fortune. You give it to the elderly and to children. But these hongbao are changed, exchanged all over the place and in the most shocking ways. For example, if you wanted your kid to go to, school right to get registered to a good school or to have a good teacher you'd have to pay a bribe a hongbao if you're going to go to the doctor and you want your doctor and this would shock us right but if you want your doctor to do surgery well you better gift the doctor this hongbao right It's expected, it's absolutely expected. And so every business conducting any, if you're trying to run any kind of business, any type of uh, entrepreneurship or anything, like you have to be paying the right people these bribes, but even all the way down to just getting your kid an education. and So so that's what I mean, like on that, uh, there was that corruption, like across the board. And if we had to deal with that, I think we wouldn't accept that in American society, right? Like we would be upset about it.
0: Oh yeah.
1: But. To see corruption on the highest levels, like access money corruption within our government, we're like, well, that's bad, but you know, like, it's not directly impacting me. So, like, I don't. Number one, I'm not 100% sure it's happening. I don't know to what extent, and you know. But so, what I think has changed in China, though, is with Xi Jinping's campaign against corruption. What it's really been is been this campaign against corruption on these lower levels, like the access money corruption still exists and in a dramatic form right but the corruption on the lower level like lower level officials are today afraid to take bribes because of how powerfully Xi Jinping has come down against that that type of corruption wow yeah
0: yeah so like uh, um okay so so like it's all this like petty crime like what would happen to them if they did take a bribe like what like what sort of like power is he trying to uh, to will
1: sure so for example um Towards the end of our time there, Um, one thing that's really interesting in China and Chinese business culture, it's similar from what I've read and heard to some culture like Korea and whatnot, where like these banquets, dinner banquets and drinking kind of parties, whatever, Uh are really central to how business gets done in China. Uh, it's just like about building these relationships and this guanxi or whatever. And so you go to these meals and you you know, have these really elaborate kind of toasting ritual that they do. It's a very formal kind of way of conducting business over a meal and with a lot of alcohol. Well, there's this one particular type of Chinese alcohol. Uh, it's a Chinese grain liquor called Baijiu. And there's a particular brand, uh, which I can't remember right off the top of my head right now, but it was like the, the, the most you know, uh, the highest price uh, Baijiu that you could buy. And at any of these kind of state functions, in government, business, you know, meals that they're conducting, et cetera, this particular brand of Baijiu was always on the table, right? It was the most expensive, like 350 USD for a bottle. Oh, wow. Well, one of the things that Xi Jinping did early on was he banned the purchase of any of this particular brand of alcohol. Uh, Because that was just kind of like a really public way of saying we're not going to tolerate basically, you know, graft, waste, abuse, fraud, things of that nature. Uh, And people became truly just afraid of what was happening. Uh, Friends of mine, uh, people that I worked with over there were expressing the same thing. And when we got back to China, like uh, within the first year or so that we were back, I was trying to reach the school that I went to that I had studied Chinese at. I was trying to get some forms and documents from them basically outlining, you know, like uh, my work, my school history there, my grades and everything else like that. But, you know, I knew how things work, Right. And I'm trying to get something from them. And even if you're speaking here in America and you're contacting your old old school or something, like, you know, you might like, like for example, in in government, right? And if you're trying to get somebody from somebody like an S1 in the Army, like, you know, try to talk nice to them, right? Because, you know, they have the power to say, oh, well, you know, I'm busy or that's not my job or there's all these (laughs) reasons why I can't do it, right? So yeah. you try to like grease the wheels a little bit, by at least being kind, right? Mm-hmm. So I knew that to get this what I needed, maybe I should, you know, send him a note and send them a hongbao, right? Just a little gift mm-hmm. to kind of speed up the process here. They call it speed <laughs> yeah. money to get somebody to do something that they're supposed to do, but a little bit quicker. So I sent it, right? So and sent a couple pictures, or whatever, because I, I knew the basically the uh, the the official that I was uh, working at the school that I was sending it to. So. A couple months later, or maybe not even that long, uh, I got the envelope back and had my uh, transcripts and everything and had a return letter that she had written, and it had the red envelope in it.
0: They sent it back?
1: They sent it back. Wow. And they said, we can't take it. Well, And this is something I would never have expected (laughs) a year prior. So people are truly afraid. So what could happen? Well, basically – you know, think about like the 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 power and the arm of the Communist Party or the People's uh, uh, Republic of China. I mean, it's 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 vast and it's powerful. Anything could happen: losing your job, uh, being put into jail, anything. You know, being fined, even uh, being completely just uh, made a persona non grata. You know, for anything. So
0: that that is kind of a so it's like a profound um, form of tyranny. So like a if If you'll bear with me, if you you take like kind of like a Carl Jung's like uh, chaos, like if you were it, I wish I wish I was like in front of you where I could draw this whole, whole thing out. But essentially, like you have like the way you you format a worldview is that like there's a a, a a un imperfect known and then a a perfect. Uh, un- or like perfect known that like you're trying to get to like we're trying to get to heaven or whatever else and then there's a pathway between it but once you step off that path you're in just total chaos where like there are no rules you don't know what, what's going on like it's just you, there's no more known at all there's not even a way to get back to the to the perfect known ever again uh, and that's really what they're wielding is that like you know if well, from what i'm hearing you saying is they're basically saying like hey look um if you do this then like you know, who knows what could happen? Like maybe you go, like at least in our system, like there's like a, a due process. We know that we could go to jail, we get to jail, it's gonna look like this and we're gonna get out. And then there's a pathway back to kind of like, you know, like life as we knew it. Whereas with this, it just seems like, well, you could just kind of get disappeared and you know, who knows what's gonna happen. Is that kind of like what, what they're wielding?
1: Yeah, that's that's definitely a part of it, right? So yeah. it's it's the fear that's instilled in people. And that's, I think the most powerful controlling force in China today. So, for example, if you're trying to put down a protest in China, like if some people are upset about some legitimate concern, maybe some government corruption or maybe some, you know, after the 2008 Sichuan earthquake or something with so many schools and buildings that collapsed due to shoddy construction practices and things like that, people were uh, reasonably upset, right? And so people go to protest. So how does the Chinese government deal with the protest? Well, all they have to do is instill enough fear in people that they are too afraid of what the consequences could be that they choose not to continue, right? So, it, and all you have to do is make a, an example of a few people, right? Arrest a few people, disappear a few people, like you said, uh, right. put the consequences on hard, and then people will think twice about whether or not they really it's really worth the risk to do so, you know? And it has to get, things would have to get pretty desperate to decide, yeah, I'm willing to spend the rest of my life in prison for a cause that I'm not so sure that I'm going to win anyway, You'd really think, think twice about it, but right. to think about the another change okay is you've probably heard about the change in the uh, the one child policy in China yeah. and how that's relaxed over time. well, if you look back yeah some of the last couple of decades during the era of the one child policy, there was this massive uh, governmental structure that was in place to enforce it basically and it was enforced from the top who dictated the rule you know the one child policy all the way down to the bottom to where uh you know provinces basically would have um birth rate projected goals like we want this is where our birth rate should be. We should have no more than this many births. And then that was pushed down into regions and then to cities and, you know, councils, et cetera, districts even. And so everyone's pushed down with these objectives. And then the people are given basically uh, a vast amount of power and liberty to ensure that those objectives are met, that oh, the wow. people are complying. And so when you look back over those last uh, 30 years or so, you see just horrific, horrific uh You know, crimes that were committed, uh, human rights violations and things, including forced sterilizations, abductions of uh, children that were born who are then uh, traded uh, in the international um, adoption racket, right? Right. Uh, You see uh, people who... Uh, were not complying with the, the mandates, would be threatened to lose their job, they'd be pressured by their place of work, they'd uh, be fined, their family members would be fined, their family members would be arrested or would lose their jobs. And so faced with all of that, there was this massive uh, program across the country to ensure that this mandate got carried out, and it was pretty effective. People were afraid. Uh, there's a massive amount of social pressure and financial pressure. And as an individual thinking about the consequences of disobeying this mandate, you'd realize not only would yourself have to suffer, but your children, your spouse, um, your family members, your mom, your, 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 your cousin, everybody, you know, even your neighborhood. <laughs> wow. Right? Yeah. And so, if, and, and, and then as the, as the uninterested party, right. If you knew that a coworker or a neighbor, wasn't cooperating. You just like uh, just like basic training in the military. You see some guy messing up, and you gotta slap them around because you know you're gonna suffer, right? Right. <laughs> That's right. how it was. And so then, so that same type of so while that program is wiped away, it's basically that program, that existing infrastructure has been repurposed for for a different goal.
0: Wow. So like, you, you have this these uh people that are just they can do whatever they want to kind of meet the state's end, and now like they turn it from the one child policy on towards corruption
1: yeah and i wouldn't say just corruption but but social control in general right and so corruption being a form of that social control but not the only uh the only goal involved obviously it's uh curtailing any criticism of the party it's um you know stoking chinese nationalism it's uh, during COVID, it was making a zero COVID policy in China, right? It was that same infrastructure. And the interesting thing is I'd, I had heard this leading up to this time that as the one-child policy was rolled out, they would have to find something to do with all these people that were employed and whose whole purpose existed for that reason, right? And so sure enough, they found something. I mean, they found COVID, they found corruption, they're finding state control. And interesting, I know you spoke with people about, um, you know, probably Chinese military spending and everything like that. But you know, I wonder if you realize that only in the last couple of years has Chinese spending on its military surpassed its spending on domestic security, meaning That's up right. until just a couple of years ago, they were spending more money controlling their own people than they were on their foreign military or the military for foreign wars.
0: Okay, so like they're, they're spending more money on controlling their, their own people. Are they, would you say that like the state as a whole seems to be more inwardly focused rather than outwardly focused?
1: I would say probably. I mean, you think about what is the greatest threat to the Chinese government right now and to the Chinese way of life. I don't think it's a foreign threat at all. I think right. it's, a, it's potentially that internal threat. And they've been talking about that for years. People have wondered if, you know, what that, that last straw will be to break uh, the camel's back, so to speak, in China to get the people to finally say enough is enough. And we, you know, we demand more freedom. We demand democracy. And people have suggested that that would happen for a long time. Uh, that was pretty much, I think, the whole kind of rationale behind um, America welcoming China onto the global stage, uh, you know, with Nixon's trip to China, yep. etc. And it was this idea that if China is welcome to the global stage, if they're integrated into the global market, then they're going to open up. Right. Democracy right. will 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 take hold in China. But it's not happened yet, you know, um, and I think, I think that does pose a a, a greater, more um, immediate threat potentially to the Chinese government than any foreign nation could would be its own people.
0: So like, they're they're very focused on like kind of controlling. I guess that makes sense with their like their firewalls that they're trying to like like not let ideas take root inside of the uh inside of the population so that way they don't want to maybe take a different approach than the the chinese communist party um but like if uh if they're spending so much money on like domestic control like how realistic is it that the the their people would would kind of like you know throw off the 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 communist party and maybe take on a like a western democracy or something you know different
1: yeah, I definitely don't see that happening anytime soon. I mean, one can one can imagine like, oh, maybe this will happen, but you know, we've 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 thought that about China forever, for decades, mm-hmm. and and even people watching Russia several times in the media over the last year or two have thought, oh no, this is you know Putin's power is weakening, and the people are going to finally you know uh, stand up against Putin and demand democracy. I just don't really see any of that happening,
0: right. especially
1: in China. Um, so yeah, I'm looking at this right now. China in 2020 spent 210 billion dollars on what they call public safety, so basically maintaining public order and control of speech at home. Um, whereas in let's see, 2022 they spent 298 billion on its military. Wow. Yeah. So it was just in those last couple of years that it surpassed what they're spending domestically at home. And you've probably heard of, I mean, the China is, is the forerunner of the modern police state. Yeah. You know, talk about big brother and everything like that. If you especially look at some regions in China, like Xinjiang, uh, in the Western region, they say it is the most heavily monitored region, like in the world with CCTV cameras everywhere, right? Just monitoring everything. And, uh, You know, we we might be concerned about Chinese spies infiltrating the United States of America, but there's certainly more Chinese spies throughout China uh, watching and monitoring the the speech of its own people. And you've probably heard, too, about the Chinese police stations being found in America and elsewhere in Europe, in New York, whatnot, right? Right. And those are basically police outcrops, right, to uh, monitor, not Americans, but to monitor Chinese citizens abroad. So, it's not even controlling Chinese citizens in China, but even overseas, they want to extend their ability to control the speech and the behavior of Chinese.
0: Yeah, it was something. So, um, probably six months ago, kind of like prepping for this, I went and did a deep dive on the, um, I think they're called the, I can't remember now, so Fung Yang, but it's like they do, but they put the Shenyang, uh, uh, uh shows on so you'll see them driving down the interstate it's like xinyong like you know like the spirit of china and stuff right right yeah so like um you know that's run by what i mean that's what the chinese state will call a call a cult but they're actually like headquartered out of uh canada and it's like Mm. apparently like harassed on a regular basis from chinese secret police to the point where the canadian police are just like yeah they call all the time that they're just people at the gate (laughs) they're other chinese people and uh, i was like just completely like the, the the idea that, like, you would have, like, I, I'm sitting in Texarkana, Texas right now. The idea that, like, there would be a secret Chinese police cell harassing other Chinese people inside of, like, like my, like, you know, hometown yeah. would be just completely ridiculous. So I was just right. like, why, why? Like, so that's, that's, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know how that contributes to the conversation other than that, yeah, that, that, uh, that definitely seems to be happening.
1: Yeah. The Gong is what they're called. Yeah. And they are, um, viewed by the Chinese government as a as a dangerous cult, or what have you? But yeah, you'll see them at basically go to any embassy in the United States. I guess also Canada. You'll see Fulong Gong protesters staged out just permanently, pretty much, with signs protesting the Chinese government. Yeah. So, like, what's the? I guess, uh, like having been an
0: American there. Like, what's your take on, on that whole dynamic? Is it is? Are they actually like a kind of like a dangerous cult, or are they just like? Something that's just the deviation from the norm. The Chinese government wants to like curtail. Yeah, I would say I would
1: say the the latter, just deviation from the norm. I'm sure they are. They probably do demonstrate some cultish behaviors, like you know, but they're not alone in that regard, right? Right. Uh, but dangerous only into it's dangerous to the ideology and the control of the Chinese. Any religion operating in China that doesn't recognize the primacy and the authority of the Chinese government is viewed as a danger, right? And so the Catholic Church, for example, in China, um, there's there's kind of like these two churches within China, like one that is subservient to the Chinese government and one that doesn't recognize the government's authority over the affairs of the church, right? And as long as the, the religion recognizes the authority of the government, for example, to determine who... What churches open or close, what priests can or cannot speak at that, you know, in that parish or whatever, or, or where the authority comes through, that's fine. Uh, but the moment they say, no, we operate independently of the Chinese government, and that's a problem. And so the Catholic Church has been fighting this battle for a while, and uh, uh, Pope Francis has been a little bit more kind of um, friendly, I suppose, trying to make some bridges you know, with the Chinese government. Uh, whereas some other posts have been a little bit more resistant. But the same thing within the uh, the Christian or Protestant church, right? There's something within China called the Three-Self Church, okay. and that's the officially government-recognized uh, Christian church, the only officially recognized Christian church in China, the Protestant church. And wow. basically all of the congregations are government-sanctioned, government-controlled all of the appointments within the church are uh, officially government approved. Um, if ever you want to speak at a three self church, it has to be government vetted, things of that nature. And without a doubt, there are people within every one of those churches who are spies, just making sure that the speech within that church aligns with the values of the government and the, uh, the, the political party, right? Um, and then o- outside of the three self church is what's called the, the house church movement. These are the underground or unregistered churches. And so these are those who, you know, who view subservience to the state as kind of a contradiction to their religious values. And so they meet privately, independently, in apartments and things like that. And they are constantly uh, being monitored, infiltrated, leaders being arrested, uh, parishioners being uh, pressured, things of that nature. And that was happening when I was there. Uh, and I've heard that it's only stepped up since that time.
0: I can only imagine. Yeah, so like, um, here's a... a, a this is two, uh, kind of a twofer for you. Like, um, whenever we were in Poland, Byron Adams did the did information operations uh, video, and uh, in that he draw he had a whiteboard. He drew a bunch of fish, and then on and the front of it there was a, a fish out in front. And he said like the American view is like, oh, well, this fish is obviously the leader because all the other fish are fo- you know following him. Well, he goes, but if you take the Chinese view. Like they look at like there's like all the fish packed together in school, and then there's this one weirdo out front, and they're like, Why like what happened with that fish? Do they kick him out? Or like, why is he not like with the all the other fish? It's like confusing to them. Now, like, for one, I'd like to just kind of explain that because that's something I've always been really curious about. And and Byron just kind of did it for the sake of the video and kind of pat and went on from that. Um, but like uh, and I'll I'll link that in the show notes if anyone wants to watch it. But the um the the other kind of like part of that question is that like if that's the way they view things, these like house churches, like uh, people that like like are willingly are willing to deviate from the nor- the the uh, the norm with their religious beliefs, be it like Christianity or the Fu Gong or, or 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 whoever. Um, like what like what motivates them to like not be complicit with the rest of their society, and especially whenever they like you know the government's you know wielding this massive club to beat them over the head if they don't comply.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, so certainly on the first point, it, it's I would say it's more related to Chinese culture as a whole than to recent developments within the government. As far as like this this like compliance mentality, right? Just right. going with the crowd. Uh, this you know don't be different. You know blend in, kind of get along, kind of a, kind of a spirit. I think is something that is that you would see probably through other Western nations as well, not just China alone but you certainly that is a is a is a big deal right um, and so you think about like when something happens in China, what you see is not just one person responding, but basically this just, just massive wave of people moving as a whole, kind of in tandem, like that group of fish, right, responding in tandem to something going on. And there's this fear of being on the outside, of somehow missing what the collective group believes is true or right or good or prudent, right? Mm-hmm. So I remember uh, also at the, sort of the tail end of our time in China, there was that uh, Fukushima nuclear yep. reactor meltdown, right? So during that time, people were panicking in China about the possibility of radiation and were buying out the stores of iodized salt, right? Believing because iodine, right, could. a uh, iodine was iodide tablets is what people would take right so believing that if they could buy enough iodized salt they could somehow save themselves from radiation i'm not sure (laughs) that's true or not right but that was the idea and so people were panic buying iodized salt to where you couldn't find it and a friend of ours uh, was she? She's about our age. She has has a, has a kid like we did, and everything. Her mom was so mad at her that she didn't go to the grocery store to buy iodized salt before it was all bought out. And she's like, "What's wrong with you?" And everything like, "You're a terrible daughter. You know, terrible mother. Like, what's going on?" Because she didn't go along with the with the kind of the general craze with everybody else. So you definitely see that, right? You see that in behaviors. You see that the way people respond to things and think. Um, and there's this idea that there's safety within that kind of that, that group thought, right? right. And so they definitely do not prize individualism like we do in America. That's something that we, we not only um, tolerate, but that we kind of applaud, right? Right. Um, and so we think being a leader is being an individual standing out from the crowd. Now, then how does that relate to these groups that do stand out? you know, I don't really know other than to say, I imagine it's got to make it, you know, um, multiply, just multiple times more difficult to be willing to take that stand and to stand out and be different. Um, yeah, you can only imagine, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, it also kind of speaks to, like, why the state is so, like, focused on controlling information because if you were to introduce, like, an idea and then all of a sudden, like, if it's started to take root, then that same dynamic that they have working for them right now would actually work against them. And it could, like, you know, kind of like, start to of generate its own momentum. And, and then all of a sudden, like, nobody cares about the, the Communist
1: Party anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could so certainly see that being a possibility.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so before, like, the the change that happened with Xi Jinping, like, why did people tolerate the uh, – that level of of corruption like you, you said that like you know, like what can be done if it was kind of like the thing um mm-hmm. and that reminds me a lot of like the whole like whenever we went into the middle east i remember uh, i had a, a friend of mine that was on a detail to make sure that these uh these contract workers uh basically serviced the air conditioners and uh he came around the corner and they're all they're all just basically sitting around and he was just like hey like why aren't you working in the uh, and the the foreman i guess you want to call him that um said like oh inshallah like basically which in you know in an islamic tradition is like uh you know like it if god wills it it'll happen right really? <laughs> yeah, yeah right no, so like you know I, I have friends of mine that, that are imams and, and like they get really fired up about this because they said that like um the inshallah like is kind of like we would say like you like like the closest thing we have have to it in like Christianity is like Jehovah Jireh, like, like God will provide, you know, whatever. Uh-huh. It's kind of like this, this step of faith that like if this, if this happens it will happen. Um, but like what ends up happening with the the laity that's probably not as spiritually formed or theologically educated, they use it as just kind of like, well, I don't really want to do it. So if God wants to get done, he'll do it himself. And, uh, and that's basically kind of like where that, that was rooted at. And, um, and so like, uh, my friend dealt with that in a very American way and the, 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 uh, the HVAC guys went to work. But um, mm. uh, so I guess the, the point of the question is, is basically like, like where does that like tolerance for like this, you know, this crazy like crime spree, which is pretty ridiculous. Uh, where did that come from? Like like what was like culturally rooted there that they were, they were drawing from to basically be like, well, you know, uh, what can you do about it?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I can't say that I know for a fact, but, um, but I've heard in China is One thing people would give excuses for it i would say why it has to be the way that it is uh some of the people i talked to who might have been on the kind of the more successful scale more educated they're younger they're of my own generation um they would talk about how they value democracy and they value that type of progress and everything but they don't believe that it can happen all at once uh-huh. That it has to be slowly introduced in China, otherwise it would just create absolute chaos. Right. And I believe that's a line that had been communicated kind of from the top for a long time. That was an excuse that the government gave to say that, well, we can't just embrace American values overnight. It's going to take time, so some of these things have to be incrementally introduced. And that was a way of basically buying time uh, and biding their time. <clears throat> to get right. people to go along to realize, well, we, we can't do it all yet. And so that was one excuse that they gave, is that change is happening in China, and certainly they've seen a lot of change economically, especially over the last uh, three decades. And so maybe it's the idea that things will get better, but they're not there yet. So right. they tolerate it. Um, another reason that I've heard so often is this, just like the May Bon line, which is, you know, can't be can't be helped, is uh, uh is that uh, basically that China has too many people, taidor right? <laughs> Chongguor, right? And so it's this idea that the, the reason for the problems in China is the fact that the population is so high. And so you can imagine how that could have been the line, right, that was uh, told during the era of one-child policy, which is like, well, right. oh, the reason for our problems are there's just too many Chinese people, you know? <laughs> right but similar to as you said that imam was really upset about that uh that islamic phrase right so some um chinese pastors i spoke with were really upset about that phrase because it really speaks to the devaluing of life in china basically yeah right and that there's too many chinese people so chinese lives are not valuable um so one life doesn't matter if one gets you know rolled over by the system you know what, what what can be done there's too many chinese people anyway right um, yeah. And then that phrase, you know, what can be done just the, the general malaise, the belief that it can't be, it can't be stopped, you know?
0: So. Right. But yeah, that's, that's pretty, uh, it's pretty fascinating. We, we start to think about it that like, um, I think there's something that we take for granted in the West is that like we're based out of like Western civilization, which like inherently means Christianity, which inherently means uh, that there's like an imago Dei, like that like every person is made in the image of God, so therefore they're infinitely valuable, and so that that sets our laws and and everything into place and the way we look at things. Whereas there, they don't have that same kind of like uh, theological or philosophical base. They're basically just taking everything from uh, from their government. And so, the, if the government is the highest authority, then the government fills the role of religion. And so, therefore, like they don't, they they the way they view things seems to be that they don't really view like you know individual human life. They really view view more like the population, which kind of like coalesces with Byron's like video fish thing. Is that kind mm-hmm. of like a good read on the situation?
1: Yeah, I would say so. And, and so I, I guess the terminology that we're talking about is like collectivism versus individualism and, right. and China, as well as other Asian nations, being a collectivist nation. Um, yeah. And so, but, and you do see that, right? So I'm not, and I'm not sure if that's the only reason or that's what at the heart of the reason for this devaluation of the individual in China. Yeah. I don't know where it comes from, to be honest, but you see it. And there have been moments when I was in China where there was this type of collective, kind of pause that i saw where as a culture they were looking for a moment at least introspectively and wondering like what the hell has happened to us right um i i to recall maybe during the 90s or so there was some type of crime that happened in new york and someone got robbed or mugged in broad daylight and people were saw it and just kind of walked by and there was some good samaritan laws that were passed right. and that was kind of like the beginning of this conversation in america about you know, our duty as individuals to step in when you see something happening wrong. And that's something that we saw while we were in China. There was some really high profile things that somehow uh, were able to get on the news and on the media and get talked about. And who knows why, right? Uh, But for example, there was this like child that had gotten run over in the street and then several other cars ran over the same body in the road and then several other cars drove around that body in the road. Uh, before anybody bothered to stop and, and lend assistance or aid. Um, and part of all that was due to a number of weird things that were happening. Uh, but one really sensational story that took place was some elderly person had gotten hit on the street. Uh, the person that hit them ran off, right? Didn't stop to help. But someone else who saw it happen pulled over to the side of the road and helped this person, put them in their car, took them to the hospital, uh, to get aid for this person. And then later on, that person was sued by the one who had gotten hit and taken to <laughs> court to be held responsible. And in court, and this was published within the Chinese news, uh, again, who knows why they allowed this stuff to come out, but they did. And basically the, the judge's ruling declared that the man who helped this person must have been responsible for his injuries, because if he wasn't responsible for his injuries, he wouldn't have helped him. Interesting. And that was the judge's logic and ruling against them, right? To holding them responsible. <laughs> and so it was in, in part because of this fear that if I if I help this person, I might, you know, put myself in a, in in a dangerous situation. I might be held liable or responsible, or I might, you know open myself up to some type of negative response um which is interesting when you think about like the the story of the samaritan right in the gospels where you have the the priest and the levite who passed by the man who had been robbed on the way to jericho and maybe it was the same scenario going through their mind maybe the thieves are still nearby maybe if i help i'll get my clothes bloody and dirty maybe i'll be implicated in the crime maybe it'll cost me something financially uh, but whatever the case, there was a few high-profile things like that that happened in China that caused the people to start talking about it, saying, "Why is it that we do this? Like, why don't we value the life of an individual more? Why don't we stop to help somebody who's in need?" Um, and I'm not sure if that's changed or not, uh, but it's definitely something that I saw while I was there.
0: Well, that's that's an interesting uh, catch-22. It puts the state in because on one hand, it's like if you really wanted to to change corruption. Then these like on the spot corrections inside the population is like a really good way to do it. It's like you know, look if you're asking for a bribe and then like you ask for the first guy and he takes you out back and beats you up or something, um, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden like that that will that will start to fix the problem. But on the other hand, like you know, you you're empowering people there to think for themselves, make a decision, and then and do something, um, which kind of goes against the the collective nature of the state needs to have in order to maintain control. So I could. Like I can kind of see how it ends up on the news, but then I can kind of see how it gets pulled really fast because it puts them in kind of like a, a philosophical straitjacket. They don't really know exactly yeah. what to do, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing I wanted to ask you about that came up with uh both David Dollar and Jeremy Goldcorn, uh was like this uh lost uh like kind of lost century. So like a. Uh, you know that if you watch like a lot of old movies like i was we were watching something the other day and they made mention of it i thought like that's interesting how prevalent it was in our uh in our culture was the uh kind of the chinese like cocaine dens there's a bunch of these chinese guys with like these really long pipes smoking cocaine and they're just like blitzed out their mind and and um you know they uh like they both, you know, brought up, hey, look, you know, like for like a hundred years, the Chinese people were kind of like pacified by like the, like the use of like illicit drugs and stuff, and then kind of the narrative now is that like not only do we want to like never have let that happen to our country again, but we also want to like you know kind of like exceed the West and kind of like show them that like, hey, look, we we've, we've overcome that. Is that like a, a narrative at the kind of like the lower levels of society that they ever talk about that or anything like that?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I've definitely heard that on the high level, right? I've heard Hu Jintao yeah. and Xi Jinping talk about that, that lost Chinese century, or like the just the great like embarrassment and humiliation that was done to China when they were occupied by foreign nations and all the rest, and uh, during the opium wars and the opium dens, etc. cetera. Um, you know, I, I can't say that I ever really heard anybody talk about that uh, on the lower level in person. Um, I kind of feel like it was instead of being something that's really at the heart of the Chinese conscience, that it's more uh, a propaganda piece yeah. uh, trying to drum up a spirit of Chinese nationalism. Uh, and you do see that spirit of Chinese nationalism sometimes, but again, on a personal level, I never really saw that. Yeah. You know? But I heard, for example, um, while I was there in China, there was some conflict with Japan one time. I forget if it was over. You know, some political dispute or something else but for some reason are you still there yeah i'm, I'm there i'm just trying to help your internet connection <laughs> okay okay <laughs> Right. all right yeah so uh for some reason there was um there was some hostilities between china and japan and on the news broke out that people were basically uh finding any japanese-made vehicles and they were torching them breaking the windshields burning the cars you know, any toyota's out there this that uh, and there was this, like, hostility towards Japan. Now, there was a time where there was some spat with the United States, and there was some news about some McDonald's windows being broken in and whatnot, and people were turning their aggression there. Uh, but even those situations, I don't know if that's not even just, like, really state-drummed-up kind of protests, you know, like like state-authorized expressions of aggression against these foreign nations. Right, right. Uh, So much as just some type of natural grassroots uh anger or nationalism because on a personal level I didn't really see that ever. Uh, right. but I did hear about things like that in the news a bit.
0: So well, what's like the the general like attitude towards like foreigners and, and stuff? Like so like did like if if they if so like let me kind of tell you where this is coming from. So like whenever I talked to David Dollar, he was talking about like whenever he was uh working in china he heard this all all the time now the thing is with dollar dollar dollars with the brookings institute he's he's dealing with the, the, the highest levels of government and and think tanks and things like that and then he said that like even now whenever he's teaching uh students that are coming from china he still hears this same thing and so i asked him i was like you know is this like uh like, is that really prevalent in the culture? And from his perspective is, is yes. And so if you kind of take a, a systems thinking approach to it and you kind of slice the orange and look at it, all these different perspectives, it's like Dollar is, is kind of locked into talking to like the highest, you know, kind of like these high quality candidates coming to his courses or, or whatever and, and, and dealing with the State Department and things like that. So they're going to be more influenced and have more at stake. With the Chinese Communist Party, so they're more likely to kind of parrot like propaganda type things. Right. Whereas with, with you, you're like you're basically like you know living on the street with like you know people that go to McDonald's every day, and so like the fact that they that you're not hearing that, it seems to be kind of like indicative of like that is a propaganda piece. Does that make sense?
1: It does, yeah. And so I could see that being the case. So with these government officials, maybe being even uh, more propagandized, right? So right. Um, buying kind of that party line and and also like propagating that same party line whereas the average person you know has less of a vested interest in that right right um so not quite buying into it um yeah so i would would say that's definitely a possibility there
0: yeah so like um what like what like if that's not there if that's not the line that the the average chinese person is is parroting what, like, if you brought up America, like, you're clearly an American, like, and you're walking around, like, they're going to know that. What what did they have to say about America? What was their, their kind of questions about it? Like, what was their attitude?
1: It was interesting. So, we of course, we were we were north of Beijing, right, about, like, an hour and a half flight away in kind of a frontier area of China with very few foreigners. And so our experience there might have been a little bit different than our experience when a few times that we visited Beijing. But what we definitely felt was kind of a mix of things. Like, in one sense, we did feel um, like uh, people were incredibly interested in American culture and automatically interested in us because we were Americans. And it was very easy to make friends in China, for example, and start making relationships because people just wanted to know you. And whether that's because… You're literally the only American in the entire city. I don't you know, I don't know, but right. it was some perception of like access, maybe that they could have, like this person must be important and uh, maybe I can get something from this relationship down the road. I, I imagine that probably factored into it. But a lot of people were just really curious and interested and loved American American culture. You can find uh, you know, just on any t shirt pretty much produced in China. There were American slogans on the t-shirts uh american movies being sold on the street and you can watch the american movies in the movie theater um people were learning english all the time they were uh doing these outside of the regular you know going to school during the day they went to after school english programs programs that i taught in which interestingly enough xi jinping recently as in the last two years canceled all like outlawed all after school english programs by the way just as a side note which is interesting um and so there was this, this really great regard for Americans. If we were walking down the street in our town, our family, and we had two little, two little cute little babies at the time, right? All right. And we, we'd stop at a red light waiting to cross. Just in that 10, 15 seconds that we waited to cross, we'd be surrounded by some 10, 15 Chinese people pulling out their cell phones, snapping photos of us. That's really how, oh yeah, that's how it was. And then when we went to Beijing, it wasn't completely different in that regard too. Like, I remember one time we went to the Temple of Heaven that was built like a a a millennia ago in China, one of the most iconic and famous ancient uh, artifacts in China. And we're sitting on a park bench for eating some sandwiches that we had made. We're looking across this lake at the temple of heaven. And then people are coming up and we're looking at us and cautiously there's this little like dance that they do where they're looking and they're waiting and then they're kind of nervously pulling out their cell phone and then they're holding it and they finally get the courage to pull it up to their face and to snap a photo of us, right? While we're sitting there. And I tell them in Chinese, I said, look, the temple of heaven is over there. Take a picture of that. Don't take a picture of me eating a sandwich on a park right. bench, right? <laughs> I kid you not. We went to the zoo and we're watching the giraffes, right? And people were taking our picture. I mean, you can imagine how that feels, right? Yeah. Like, like, you know, you should be taking a picture of the animals if people taking your picture. You kind of like feel in the same category as this cage elephant or this uh, this giraffe, You know, just a spectacle, <laughs> right? So people were definitely interested, but at the same time, we did feel some hostilities sometimes. And, and it'd be hard to kind of like put my finger on exactly what that was. It wasn't often, uh, but you sometimes felt that if, if it wasn't maybe uh it, it kind of felt like jealousy, maybe in, in sometimes. Right. Um like. And not necessarily from like the, the highly connected and highly educated people like you're talking about who may be indoctrinated in um, the, the PRC doctrines, right? Right. But we'd even be walking down the street and, you know, some, some worker 20 stores up on a building hanging out of a window would see us. And would look down and would yell from the top of the building this kind of this pejorative toward directed towards foreigners which is this word lao white and they thought it was so funny they'd say lao white lao Wai, hello hello and they'd start laughing and just had such a good time <laughs> you know and it was just kind of like this mocking kind of attitude and one of the first lessons we learned in our chinese class at the university was a lesson on this term lao white we found it interesting because within the coursework it took great pains to explain that la wai is actually not a derogatory term. It's a term of endearment that Chinese people use for foreigners. <laughs> but I think that was just a spin because it was such a common derogatory term that we, were, we would hear on the street from people. Wow. Um, yeah, but so there's a little bit of both, you know, like we definitely saw both. Um, but I would say if anything at the time, the scale would, be, would have been tipped towards people being really interested and friendly and welcoming of us than being hostile.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, so like a kind of like a, a follow up to that. Um, so, you know, my dad was a, a cop for 25 years and I was listening to a podcast and they talked about how uh, the, uh, the PRC, specifically uh, uh, the Army is uh, trying to, they're suspecting them to have helped the uh, fentanyl trade with the drug cartels to get it into America. And whenever I'm listening to this, I'm thinking like, well, oh, they're just trying to do the same thing that like the West did to them at, during that lost century, which kind of harmonizes with their uh their uh, I guess narrative about, about the past. And um, so I asked my dad about it and he was just like he was like, Oh yeah, like we've known that for years. Like like, like he was just kind of like 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 completely like ambivalent to it. And I thought like, well, this is like a profound thing to me that like you have a foreign government that's like selling your people drugs. And he's just like, yeah, wait, like, you know, that, that comes from there. And there's some other dynamics to it. And I was like, Wow, that's 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 really interesting. I'd like to get like your take on that, especially with like the recent um, legalization of, of like different drugs. Uh, like I was just in Colorado not too long ago, and it's just like the the amount of like head shops that they're there everywhere. They're just like selling weed, and you you can smell on the streets. And if you go up into Seattle, you can smell it there. And it kind of makes you wonder: is like is do you think that that is kind of a, a trend that uh, maybe the PRC is is pushing in America through one way, shape, form, or fashion?
1: Well, I would definitely agree with the the fentanyl issue, right? So uh, that being brought in through across the border in Mexico. And the reports that I've read are the same, right? That the vast majority of those are being, uh, the chemicals are being actually processed in China, shipped to Mexico, and then smuggled through the cartels over. And right. whether it's like a, a, like on paper, this is what we will do type of strategy or just some kind of complicit thing that the government has, you know, allowed to happen because they don't see it as, you know, as a, as a problem for them, right? Um, but it's definitely happening. Right. Um, and then you didn't mention TikTok, but, I, but TikTok's been in the news for that same reason also a lot, yeah, right? right? Whereas TikTok is being controlled by China, uh, is, a, you know, a Chinese-owned uh, company, et cetera. Uh, and there's been huge, uh, you know, like anecdotally evidence or talk about what TikTok looks like in China, about teaching kids math and science, and stuff right. right. Whereas in America, it's just about, you know, like the most, uh, you know, grotesque things in American society being, uh, proliferated, right? Um, and so, I'd, I'd be interested if if it was like this, you know, direct like white paper strategy. On behalf of the Chinese government, which is just super well planned out, or if it just kind of happened and they and they yeah, rolled with sure. it, but right. it's definitely either way, it's happening for sure. Yeah, um, and I'm sure that the Chinese government is happy about it, whether it's um, they're behind it directly or not. You know?
0: Yeah, like that's uh, like. I, I don't know why I never thought about, like, the social media side of things. I actually have a paper that I'm working on that basically expounds on that and basically says that, hey, look, like, you know, like, if you look at it inside of China, yeah, you're you're teaching kids, like, good things, but then you get, come to the to the U.S., you look at TikTok, and it's, like, you know, like, all kinds of, like, sexual deviancy and, like, drug mm-hmm. abuse and, and craziness. It's just, like, it's, like, insanity, kind of, like, yeah. and so uh, that's kind of interesting. Um, there's another point, point I, I wanted to, to make with you, but, like, yeah, so that's kind of uh, – an interesting point, and I, I do wonder – oh, this this is where I was going to go with that. So, like, uh, the way that the West views warfare versus the way the East views warfare, and this is both, like, India and China is very, very interesting. So, like, we view warfare as, like, on or off. We are at peace with somebody or we are fighting them, one of the two. It's very binary, um, and it's not until the past, like, couple of – you know, like, probably, like, 10 years or so that we talked about, like, you know, like, conflict below the threshold. The threshold of armed conflict and like kind of this scale, you know, mentality. Whereas like China, India, Japan, like those Eastern mentalities, they they view it as like competition. Like we're always fighting, you know, America. It's just the question is like how intense is it, and like we're going to scale the intensity up or we're going to scale the intensity back. So if you look at like things like TikTok. Fentanyl, so on and so forth. It's all inside that gradient to where they're just like, okay, well, we're not exchanging bullets with them because we'll lose that war, but we can fight like you know culturally, and we'll use these tools uh, to to do it. Does that seem to like kind of like make
1: sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right, I and mean, you probably heard something uh, about, uh, and I don't have all the details on it, but it was like Nikita Khrushchev, this uh, uh, premier of the Soviet Union back in the day. He predicted how the Soviet Union would be able to overthrow. The United States, yep. uh, culturally, right, by infilt- infiltrating our institutions, by turning the populace, uh, basically, against American uh, norms and 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 uh, and values, mm-hmm. uh, and that's the same thing that I think that we see happening with China, right? So China is fighting on that, uh, I guess it would be like the the information and moral plane, right, in the physical plane of war, uh, and like you said, without even firing a shot, and. And I am, you know, definitely more concerned about that than I am about a physical war happening right now with China. I know there's been a lot of talk about that. Uh, even there was this Air Force general who recently predicted that we should be at war with China by 2024. Right. He basically told his troops uh, in a, a public email that he sent out. He said, get ready. It's happening. He said, update your contact information, get your affairs in order, uh, know how to fire your weapon at, from a seven meter range, you get a headshot, like it's happening. We're going to war with China by 2024. Um, but right. at the same time, I think, I think if, if we're not careful, if we're just looking at that, we might ignore the really the more profound and greater threat, which is uh, a war being fought on a different plane. And maybe and you can even throw economic plane into that sphere, but, you know, but, but beyond just this economic war that we are in with China, uh, I think really they're able, if they're able to degrade American society a society uh socially and morally uh, then they can win before they even uh, surpass us as the world's number one GDP
0: yeah like mainly like, got so like the the we had uh a uh, Brad Marble on that was from the, uh, from Trinidad Tr- 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 G2 and he's a kind of like the Chinese expert. And we talked about this a little bit, but like a, when you start to kind of dig into um, a couple of things with, with the PRC is like one, they're big proponents of systems warfare. And so what they do is like where they look at like a tank, and they say, like, look, we could, we have to, you know, disable the tank. We could, like, you know, starve it of gas. That's like attacking the fuel system. We could, you know, like shoot it with, with a, a missile, and like that's a, just a direct physical attack. We can do all these different things. Because one of the ways that we can kind of disable the tank is make the tank driver not want to operate the tank. And so the question becomes, like, okay, well, how do we do that? And it's through these means, just make them think that like the U.S.'s because isn't just. Uh, like, you know, they're, they're not going to be taken care of. You, you go back to JFC Fuller's, you know, theory of, the, uh, or the, you know, of the science of war and start to kind of leveraging all those little things to say like, okay, well, you're never going to be remembered. Uh, you're not gonna be taken care of. You're not going to, you know, like those types of things. They start kind of building fear and then doubt in in the system itself. And that's how how you win. Now, the Khrushchev thing that you're talking about is the foundation of what uh, the Russians would come to develop as the the, uh, hybrid model of war or hybrid warfare. And so, like, uh, you saw that in Ukraine that, like, at first it was like – well, we just had like these, you know, uh, you know, like uh, like these IO type uh, attacks that kind of get to get the people kind of prepared to to kind of swing one way or the other. Then you start using your um, your organized crime to do different things. Then it's like. You know, like kind of like uh, spec ops type stuff where we're gonna send these like, you know, little green men over there to do X, Y, or Z. Then finally, you kind of get to the point where, and I think I'm missing a step, but eventually you get to the uh, conventional warfare. The thing that then the Russians tried this in Ukraine, but the thing that they, they, they kind of miscalculated is that they had too much confidence in the, in the the steps leading up to it. So whenever they rolled across the border, they just expected the Ukrainians just to be like, kind of shorted off and be like, well, you know, we knew this was coming. Here you go. You can have it guys. And instead they, they met like a, a pretty aggravated, uh, you know, population that was like, you know, ready to fight them. Um, and so like it, it, you know, it's kind of a long rant, but like the, I think you're right that like the actual assault on America is not going to be physical and their doctrine supports that. They basically say that like, ever since the Gulf War, it was it became painfully obvious that you're not going to win a ground war with the United States of America. It's just like our doctrine is too developed, our leadership is too developed, our weapon systems are too developed, we're too well-funded, we're too capable, like we can project power anywhere in the in the globe. And so like if, if you look at the Chinese mind, they've grown up on Sun Tzu, and they're they're like, okay, how do we win the fight without actually fighting? And so like, and, and that's, they just basically employ that. They say like, okay, well, if we're going to lose a physical fight, Let's not do do that. Let's go do something different. And so that something different maybe is selling fentanyl, or maybe it is you know uh, TikTok, or there's a new like Amazon replacement from China. Uh, Kate got on there and looked at it the other day and it was like, you know, something we bought for ten dollars you get for like fifty cents. And so that like I think you're you're probably pretty close to the mark that that is actually an assault. But the question that it becomes is like, well, what do you do with what do you do about that? You know?
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah. But yeah. So um we. Yeah, we're over an hour. I don't want to keep you too long. If there, if you had like any kind of like uh, parting uh, advice to say, like if we found ourselves in China, culturally, what are some things that we should keep in mind? Like what are some taboos that we need to to not cross? And what are some things we can do to kind of endear the population to us?
1: Wow. Hmm. That's a tough question <laughs> That's right on the spot. Um, hmm. Yeah. about like winning hearts and minds in China, right? Well, how does that? How does that? Well, I'm on?
0: not talking about like on a strategic or even operational level, but like if like I if I'm a Chinese dude, and you bumped into me in the street, like what well, what could you like what could you do to kind of like win me over?
1: um Well, you know, I could I could share a few kind of anecdotes about that that might be interesting. Uh, how like a, applicable they would be in a, a given situation would you know depend sure. on the circumstances, but. Um, One thing that I found interesting in China is um, there's obviously, you know, we've probably heard before, like a great respect for like your elders in China, right? Right. Um, One of the things I really found that that surprised me in China is that everybody in mainland China, at least, uh, when you get to know somebody, if they're going to be a long term relationship, they're a neighbor or a coworker or a friend or something of that nature. uh, One of the first things you do is you find out your relation and age to them. And the way they do that isn't by asking how old they are, what year they were born. Instead, they ask them uh, what symbol they are in the Chinese zodiac, right? So, like, uh, what symbol are you? And if you say, well, I'm a rat or I'm a tiger, that puts you in this, like, what is it, like, this uh, you know, 12-year window or so, right? And so then they can guess based upon you know your relative age, uh, how old you are, what year you were born, whether you're born in '84 or whether you're born in, you know, 94 or something like that. Um, And then they can determine if they are older than you or younger than you. And so then in that conversation, the next thing that happens is they would say and conclude, oh, well, then you are my older brother or you're my younger sister. If you're kind of a contemporary age or if you're the age of like a a, their father, right, or their son, there would be you're either my uncle or you're my nephew or niece. And then, of course, if you're a grandparents' age, then you're my grandmother, grandfather, or you're my grandchild, right? And so, everyone within Chinese society who has some kind of an ongoing relationship, at least where we were in Inner Mongolia, refers to themselves as members of a family—brother, sister, uncle, aunt—and just that's just the way of of uh, of referring to one another, right? Okay. Uh, which is really interesting. Um, and then, uh, when you develop a relationship with somebody, um, And let's say you were to bump into some Chinese guy in the street. I suppose you, you know, exchange ages, you find out how old they are. Say okay, so you're my, my big brother. So you call him big brother. He invites you over to his house and says, Hey, come on over to my house, bring your family. We'll have a meal together. Cool. Right. So you go to their house. If you're visiting someone's house in China for the first time, it's expected that you uh, bring a gift. And if you know that, for example, because Chinese families are often multi-generational. So there's a grandmother, uh, children, and grandchildren living in one home, and uh, if there's a grandmother or grandfather living there, it would be appropriate to bring a gift specifically for the grandmother or grandfather in oh. that house. Uh, and so you do something that it pertains to their health. So, for example, you might buy some, uh, some cartons of milk uh, because milk is considered to be healthy, especially for the elderly, right? Um, or you bring something practical. You certainly would never bring cut flowers, like ever, right? Because that's like the most impractical thing in Chinese culture. Like, why would you buy... Flowers that are already dead and dying. Like it makes right. no sense whatsoever. So instead, what you could bring for the families, you could bring cooking oil. Like they sell like these giant cases of cooking oil, like because they use, you know, cooking oil and everything because they're always stir frying, right? right. So you can buy several, uh, you know, things of expensive cooking oil to bring as a gift uh, or a big bag of rice, even. So it's the most awkward thing showing up to a friend's house for the first time carrying a big you know, tub of cooking all in one hand and a bag of rice in the other, but that's just as common as it would be showing up to a friend's house here in America with a bottle of wine, right? And right, like A right. loaf of French bread or something like that. Uh, so that's, that's something else that you would do. Um, if you're going to go out to a meal with somebody in China, this is something else we found really interesting is that um, there's Never, never would you ever, if you're having a meal with somebody, basically, right? Would you ever go Dutch, as we say in America, right? You would never just like split the check, you would, or you never have separate checks. Uh, so you're always going to treat somebody. Um, but the way it works is just reciprocal, right? So if I treat you this time, you just kind of keep a mental note, and the other person will will treat me the next time, and that's just kind of how it will go. But then there's this dance that happens when you're at the meal and you're paying for the tab, even if both of you know who's expected to pay. Like if I invited you this time, that would mean that I would be expected to pay for the meal because I, I had done the invitation. Uh, and it's understood already, like no matter what happens at the end of the day, I'm gonna pay for the meal. However, when the check is brought by the waitress or waiter, you have to fight over the check. And so if you're not fighting over the bill, then you're showing a great deal of disrespect to the person who invited you out. So you fight for the check. You make like like every effort to demonstrate the fact that you're 100% committed to paying for this check, even though you know at the end of the day, you're not going to do it. And so I've seen Chinese people like grab two ends of the check in their hands, you know, on the plate, just pulling at it, right? Arguing (laughs) over it, getting pretty angry and heated about it. And then finally, the person who's expected to pay wins the battle, takes the check, and pays. And that's just what's done, right? So it might really confuse you, but that's something that you'd be expected to do if you're in a Chinese context and you're going out to a meal with a friend. It's um,
0: well, pretty yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, well, that's a, a good place for us to to stop. Uh, thanks for coming on, man. Is it what like? Uh, is there anything that you'd like to leave the audience with, or anything that I should have asked you about that I'm not smart enough to? Yeah. You know, I would just
1: I would just mention one thing. It was a quote that I came across recently. I was listening to this uh, book, and it said, I think it's by an anonymous source, and that is that history is something that happens to other people. Hmm. And that's how we think about it, right? Right. We never imagine some global uh, world order changing event happening within our own lifetime. It's always something that happens to somebody else or to some other time, some other era. Right. Um, so as we talk about all this, like I think it's that's near about impossible to imagine some of the you know the, the most like uh, apocalyptic outcomes that we sometimes worry about. But at the same time, I remind myself that that's how we always think about history is that it's not going to happen to me, but it could. Right. Um, so whatever that means, it could happen. Let's put it that way.
0: Right. Well, I mean, like I guess one of the the kind of like takeaways from that is like to be prepared and be ready and hope for hope hope for the best so which is the whole point of the podcast definitely all right man well thanks for being on
1: Mister, it was a pleasure
0: this has been the raven report podcast the official podcast of the 81st striker brigade combat team if you're interested in seeing if you have what it takes to join our team go to our instagram click the link